You're listening to Theology Untucked with Tim and Caleb. Our aim, as always, is to help the people of God understand, love, and enjoy the Word of God. For more information, visit us at theologyuntucked.com. You are listening to another episode of Theology Untucked with Tim and Caleb. Tonight's episode is titled, Literary Genres of the Bible, Historical Narrative. And now, here are your hosts and theologians Anales, Tim and Caleb. How do you like that one? Oh, that's a nice word. I like that. It's, uh, Glad like I pronounced the, it right. The, the, yeah, no kidding. A Chronicles of the... Of, of the theologians that that could you know it's kind of like that old uh, that old book the uh, the engine that could we're kind of the theologians that try and uh man take, sometimes it takes us down fun paths doesn't it yeah theologians that take latin words out of context and just make up new stuff kind of like this well, recent book that we ran into recently oh on reforming anthropology that was weird we had we had this strange book we were reading, and it, it was written back almost twenty years ago. And it's it's about what uh, you, you always know when somebody's coming through and uh, they're trying to remake something that's you know been talked about for two thousand years in the church. Um, it's going to be an interesting book, and uh, this one was specifically dealing with uh, what was it? Uh, theological anthropology, right? We're, we're gonna the 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 study of man from a Christian perspective or something like this, yeah, and, and supposedly a reformed guy. Yeah, don't even get me started on that because that dude doesn't know the first thing about being a reformed guy. <laughs> he doesn't know anything about reformed theology. Yeah, um, I he he knows about it philosophically, but uh, my gosh, I was just reminded how important it was to research the author that you're reading and see the outcome of their faith. You know, thankfully, this book was written like 17, 20 years ago, something like this. It was like 2002, 2003. When he was in faith. uh, When he was claiming to be a Christian still. And then less than 10 years after that, uh, about seven, eight years ago or so, it kind of came out as a semi-atheist, quasi-atheist, Christianist. Now he's on the whole reforming the idea of god kick so yeah it's this new like christian atheism thing which just is bizarre to me um actually somebody that we know um that we go to school with not in our cohort but uh you know he 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 went he was like a professor there where he went to um graduate school at um and you know he just said didn't understand what he said then don't understand what he's saying now (laughs) sounds about right i spent hours with this book uh wasting my life away i (laughs) i'm glad i read it just so i know yeah at least my red flags are accurate because i usually when i pick up a book from somebody i've never heard of i go and research them first i didn't with this one yeah i was about six hours in and i was like i the, the end of this road is absolute ruin. What happened to this dude? And I knew the book had been written like two decades ago, so I went to go look it up, and sure enough, dude dude comes out as atheist later on, and it's like, yeah, that that sounds about right. Uh, <laughs> but have you if you've read any of the newer stuff that he's written, it sounds quite similar. Like, yeah. 
the ideas were like very new agey and Gnostic. And I don't know what, what it is about us hipster Christians in this age that we got to make up new language. I'm just as guilty of it. Um, like this book talked about relationality. The relationality um, and uh, uh, missional and uh, yeah, now we're really good at um, or you know we could have just used biblical words like discipleship and stop being boring. You yeah. need to be interesting, otherwise people won't become Christians. Hey, just get a fog <laughs> machine. Hey, I think in Tim, if we can get some people to donate some money, fog machine every yeah. Pod- well, what I you tell think? you, I got this little. Uh, it doesn't really transpose thing. into a podcast, <laughs> but if you watch the YouTube videos, you know, yeah, little fog. So you know what? We can just say for our podcast listeners, uh, for you guys listening, uh, just audio. Imagine our offices filled with a sea of fog, and, and all it's the not and marijuana smoke. Lights. No, of course not. And uh, and and you will you will be transported. I guarantee you. Of course, y'all can probably smoke dope up there in New York, can't you? Uh, not recreationally yet. Hmm. I think they no. passed something like that. They're working on it. Medical, but yeah, kind of weird. All right, so histories. <laughs> Historical so, yeah, narrative. I love biblical genres. One of my favorite uh, little side areas of it, something that people don't talk about much. Um, you know, people who read through the Bible go, you know, here's a story that's happening, then here's some of those do's and don'ts and then here's some poetry for some reason and then we're back into some narratives and then proverbs which kind of confuse some people then prophecy which confuses everybody apocalyptic literatures things like daniel and ezekiel and uh the book of revelation things like that and then uh then you get into the familiars things like gospels which is its own literary genre uh the bible actually invented that genre uh the only one it did by the way then you get the epistles, which are letters, usually from one person to another or one person to a whole church. Um, and uh, yeah, we're going to get to walk through a lot of these. So we've, we've done so far, we've done wisdom literature, we've done law, which kind of encompassed some narrative because the right. first five books are all considered law and inside law is narrative. And that's probably our first jumping off point. Yeah. So I, I'm glad you brought that up. So... That, you know, the idea of, of how, what we've already even just covered um, with the Pentateuch, uh, the Torah, the law, um, wisdom literature, how they kind of interweave with narrative. Um, but then but then also, too, um, like you brought up the Gospels, and, and, that, and it, it is its own unique genre, but you see... If you've spent much time in the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament, you see the same and similar type styles as they've kind of interweaved all of that into their writing and then to their audience. Um, So it's just a really cool, unique thing. They knew their Hebrew Bible well. You you can just tell by the way they... And like you said, they kind of... It, it makes its own unique kind of literary narrative genre and, you know, it's histories. It's kind of got all of it, but, you know, and so that's why I can't unhitch the old Testament because it just brings so much more beautiful light 
when we open up the New Testament. Yeah, I mean, the New Testament basically means nothing without the Old. Uh, the, the, I, you know, I'm doing my dissertation uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, and I mean that 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 book is the fulcrum of the entire Scriptures, and it it is why I picked it, and it's this thing that that the Hebrew Scriptures and the Greek Scriptures kind of pivot on. Uh, on the Gospel of Matthew. It's why in every canon list we have, it's the very first one mentioned. It's always right there next to, um, at least in the Jewish layout of scriptures, next to Second Chronicles, uh, right at the close of the, uh, of the Hebrew scriptures. And it, it sits there as this transition point. What, what, we, what we closed out the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures with, was this was this promised expectation and unfinished story, mm-hmm. and and in comes the gospels, you know, like four freight trains heading down to you and going, hey, hey here's the capstone of the story, uh, here's the climactic action, and it's almost like the the Acts of the Apostles and the the Epistles and even the Apocalypse um, of John, all all of these are uh, falling action you know, in the, uh, in the, in the whole story arc of scripture. And so I, I do find the gospels as the pinnacle, which is fitting because the very object of our faith is their subject, uh, our Lord Christ. And so historical narrative is woven throughout all of this. Correct. You know? And so, I mean, we talked about law last time and it might seem weird to refer to Genesis and the first half of Exodus as law, but one of the things we talked about there is that even though it is almost entirely narrative, it is a narrative that is doing the same thing that the rest of law is doing. And, and Jewish people and Christians alike have referred to the first five books as law, Torah, thousands of years for this reason. It, it, is, it is a foundational grounding text for the people of Israel and for the church. And so even though there's narrative from Genesis 1 through Genesis 50 and then Exodus 1 through Exodus, what, 22, 21, something like this, you know, and then there's still little pieces of narrative all along the way. All of this is establishing this culture that the law is creating, that God is creating almost out of thin air, you know, just the same way he... He brought Isaac into existence in a in a, in a, a, a woman's womb that was too old to bear children. He's bringing Israel out of Egypt and creating their own culture. Yeah, making it, for them a law code. And, and and so when when we look when we look at all that, it's the greatest. It, of course, you know we're in biblical archaeology now too. And yeah, which, which you know plays into this. But but where would we be? the greatest evidence that we have is the biblical text um and and, and even with with archaeology so with, without that we're, we're just not able to understand because we've just pulled up just a small fraction of of what we're probably ever going to be able to do from from archaeology i love archaeology but but the text does stand on its own um Mm -hmm. it's just that it's the greatest piece of evidence and then also too when when we look at the law and the way that um like you said you know it it being grasped out of thin air if if god doesn't do this for jacob for israel 
they don't exist right in the future um we don't exist eventually in the future so yes the law is good um mm-hmm. and and so it, 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 it it's it's what enabled the the people of god to have boundaries to have a way to set their structures and way of life that was relative to them in their place and time and culture some of these some of these laws some some are explicitly still relative to us today some of them are are not um i i'm not worried about not boiling a baby goat in its mother's milk but because we're so far removed from that that that's where kind of it's neat as we as we study history and and archaeology you know we're we're pulling up these ideas that help say with with biblical interpretation culturally we're maybe something in the text that's a little obscure and ambiguous because we're so far removed from it brings a little bit more light into that. Right. And, and, and so is it, as it is founding a culture, um, God includes historical narrative as part of his law. And, and that, so we, we kind of talked about law last time and tonight we're talking about historical narrative. And with that, while we can include Genesis and the first half of Exodus, the reality is that historical narrative is by far and away the most common genre throughout Scripture. You, you'll run into it not only in Genesis and Exodus, you'll get smatterings of it in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as well. Yeah. Um, but then you open up the book of Joshua, and now you're just going to hit a whole line of historical narratives. Joshua, Judges... The Book of Ruth, which takes place during the time of the judges, First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Uh, fun fact: originally known as First and Second, Third and Fourth Kings. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anyone wants that little piece of uh, information, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, and then you have the two almost magnum opus um, books on historical narrative: First and Second Chronicles, mm-hmm. um, and then you know bits of job and parts of the prophets especially people like jonah or haggai who are actually like telling a story uh in the middle of it um rather than those who are mainly focused on uh an oracle like obadiah or something like this i mean obviously it happened in a historical timeline but you know their writing is not historical narrative uh whereas uh someone like jonah is almost what is he 99% is historical narrative in the mm-hmm. book of Jonah and only like i think i think the oracle he has is one sentence long 40 days hence and this city will be overthrown you know and it's just it's such an amazing thing to even call the book of Jonah a prophecy or a prophet um while he is a prophet that's not what his book is his book is historical narrative and uh and carries with it certain things so um when we come to the new testament what do we have um Gospels, I actually don't put into this. While they have historical narrative, they're kind of like law. Uh, they are their own genre. So we'll talk about Gospels at a later date. Yeah. The Acts of the Apostles, mm. historical narrative, mm-hmm. incredible narrative. I'm walking through it right now in my class on pneumatology that I teach on Thursdays. And we've been walking through X, uh, through the book of Acts for months at this point. I don't even know. Um, and so, but then... Where else do we get any historical narrative in the New Testament? We don't. No. So you got the book of Acts, and then you've got a whole lot of Old Testament. 
Um, which is interesting that God uses so much story, which is really what this is. Yeah, and I mean, and there's you know secular science, that, you know psychology. Um, well, it's somebody that I that I that I like to listen to. I think a lot of people like Jordan Peterson done a lot of work on this. Just the idea of how the the human brain um, learns in, in a certain way through this idea of story. Um, and, and, and then also to like, just say, and if you've ever been to counseling or, and, or ever counseled somebody, you know, one of the things that they're going to kind of tell you to do is kind of, is journaling. Um, you know, and of course you're, you're reflecting back, you're kind of doing, um, doing this same type of thing. So if, if, if any of you have ever done that, or I, I'd highly advise to do it, um, it, it's, it's good to be able to kind of tell your own story and, and how is it that you would tell that story um for example you know the 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 first book of course in the historical narrative you know is going to be that the idea of joshua um mm-hmm. and of course you know when it comes to say secular science and archaeology and things like you know it's kind of like almost they're always trying to have an agenda to disprove the bible and, and also two right. christians can can make the wrong error to to do vice versa the you know the other way that the thing is is they're not giving every specific detail of everything that you do if you're going to be journaling and kind of writing your own history you know it, let's just say you do talk about your birth well there's not a whole lot you're really going to be able to remember you're going to have to kind of pull that from somebody else maybe the town you were born in you're not going to cover every single detail and maybe you skip forward to these high points so so that's that's what your your biblical authors are are doing this very thing. However, for example, with Joshua, uh, because we are in biblical archaeology, and you know we're looking at some of these sites specifically that um, there's been digs at of mm-hmm. the detail that is there is what is what's important, mm-hmm. um, and and so you've got places of geography that that are very very in, in, important for us and, and and these are type these are some of those things a lot of times i guess maybe people kind of consider boring I, it's i guess i'm a nerd so i, I like the boring stuff i like yeah, the no i like the genealogies um and and the reason being because of that it, it allows me to empathize with the original author it, it allows me in the best way to be able to get into their head see through their eyes um, but we do theology with all of it. Mm-hmm. That I mean, there, there's theology interwoven through all of this. Maybe it's not as always explicit, um, but that's where it's fun to kind of dig in there and do that work. That's why I love history. Me and you are both kind of history guys. Your undergrad was in history. My, my master's mm-hmm. uh, church history. So, I mean, we're, we're both kind of history buffs. So, I, you know, maybe that's why we like these areas of our genres of scripture so much but yeah there's just so much there that we have missed for all sorts of reasons um but but that's kind of the the other thing about it it's always fun to discover something new and learn something new what have you learned new lately by the way just kind of what we've been doing 
I, I think I think for me it's it's learning how much of a disconnect there is between yeah. what we get to see in seminary and what what somebody who will never tune into an archaeological dig you know digest uh, ever get to be exposed to and I think that's one of the reasons why we started this show is to try to connect some of that here and and this this particular area this idea of biblical genres is is one of my one of my more favorite areas to do this in because uh, a lot of people will look at something like for instance historical narrative and to go right off what you're saying to kind of sum up what you're saying here is when they're writing these things these are intended to be communicated as factual stories of what happened real events and there there has been a push the last couple hundred years to immediately call into doubt anything that comes especially from the old testament uh nobody has honestly nobody has the stones to challenge anything in the new testament anymore because we can prove pretty much everything in there yeah um and yeah as you go back and back and back further further in history um yeah, you are hard pressed to start proving things as historical realities. In, for instance, Genesis, it's been thirty five hundred years since it's been written, four thousand years since the latest events of it took place. You're not finding anything in the ground except in very extreme circumstances um, where archaeology is going to try to back that up. But the reality is, there's so many things throughout the historical narratives that when we can back it up that they match up so insanely well that it calls us to give the benefit of the doubt to places that we would usually call historical narrative, uh, you know, into question in, in the past. And if, if for anyone who's actually really interested in this, a, a great book recommendation um, and written fairly accessibly um, is, is written by a guy named John Oswald, um, mm. which is The Bible Among the Myths. Um, really, 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 good uh, really good book that's that's addressing this issue of when when we are looking at the biblical text, um, are are we looking at something that was intended to be myth, like pretty much every single other thing that we run into in the ancient Near East, or are we looking at something that in most cases is an eyewitness account, either first or second hand, um, or a a a reassembling of things like the chronicles. Which is taking all of their, you know, information and then organizing it to put forward an argument of of a of a certain direction that history is going. Uh, all of this stuff comes out when we actually take the text seriously, and I mean seriously. When it's historical narrative, we listen to it. Yeah, it is intended to be communicated. This is the essence of biblical theology. It is intended to be communicated, interpreted, and understood as a factual retelling of events. And so if we come to it with nothing but skepticism, as has been the habit of so many for the past couple hundred years, we do violence to the text before we even open it up. Yeah, I'm kind of skeptical of skepticism. Um, (laughs) So, so, but let's be critical. Um, of everything sure. and so like if we're going to be critical of you, you and so you brought up um the way the ancient near eastern um culture the way that they wrote their myths 
Um, mm-hmm. So you you see when you when you study um, Akkadian, Ugaric, you know any of these other languages um, from from archaeological evidence and, and things like that that we found. Okay, you see a lot of cultural similarities to where you're comparing, say, the biblical text to what they're doing. You, you, you see that this is coming from the same time period, but there, there's also something that's very different and unique about the biblical text and historical narrative. All of the nations wrote it in poetry-type form to where it alludes to myth. Right. They don't do that because that, this is not... This is not poetry, and, and then also even the narrative of of, of the law, the Pentateuch. It, it's it's not poetry. There may be some no. po- poetic phrasing here and there, but I mean, it's not poetry. It's not myth. It it is historical fact, um, eyewitness testimony. So, for example, too, we're talking about these archaeological digs. So, Hotsor, uh is it Hazor or Hotsor? I, b- I believe it's Hotsor. What one of the, one of the um, biblical sites that it's in Joshua that we've went to it's, uh, was pretty much the main city, one of the main uh, cities where one of the Amorite kings were at. Um, and I heard a statistic the other day of that it's a huge archaeological. We've, we've been digging there for a while, but it's such a huge area that archaeologist was saying it's going to take us 600 years to get everything that's just at hot sore. So, I, I mean, um, and that's just, that's one spot in northern Israel. And, man, we, we just got so much stuff um, to be able to, to uncover. So the biblical text can be trusted, and, and it stands it stands on its own. Um, like the detail that is is given in, in the conquest accounts. These are one of the things that, you know, they, I guess, with secular archaeology from, from dating and stuff like that, you know, so we're just recently reading on that with, with Jericho, for example. Um, the detail from the archaeological, and I believe her name was Kenyon. Now, for some reason, um, she dates it 150 years earlier, and and so her conclusion was that it had already been destroyed and it couldn't have been um, the Israelites that overthrew it. H- however, here's the, here's the problem with that. Um, the detail of what we found at the archaeological site lines up exactly with what Joshua says, the way the walls fell, um, mm. all of this kind of stuff. So if, if it didn't happen, and we're look, this dating is coming from pottery, of you know a neck that's you know bent here or a little there they they dated a little bit earlier that that the, the fact of the matter is is absence of evidence isn't a proof of anything n- number one right um that but the evidence that that we do have um and, and you know the text stands on its own it can be trusted However, when we do find these archaeological discoveries and the detail from geography and, and just at every small, it just might be a small little phrasing, you're like, wow, he told that in, in great detail mm-hmm. that it, it, w- it wouldn't have been possible. And so it, it just kind of one of them things that assures us because we all have 
doubts or assumptions or trying to figure things out from time to time. And so when, when we see things like this, you know, I always go back, um, as we should even personally reflect on our faith of whenever doubt creeps in, we're like, no, God, you know, God's done this and this and this, and there's and, all and of isn't this that, evidence. Isn't here. that one of the greatest gifts that historical narrative gives to us? Absolutely. It is this, uh, is this remembrance almost on our behalf of, of how God has worked with our, spiritual ancestors mm. how how he has involved himself in their lives and and we we have these examples um you're, you're mentioning joshua um the book of judges my goodness oh man um god being faithful when his people are not faithful you know that that is that kind of devotion that he has to his people to see it through um you know, uh, the welcoming, um, not only into his people, but into the very bloodline of the greatest king that there is, someone like Ruth, hmm. uh, another another book of historical narrative. These, but not only into David's line, but into Jesus's line himself. I mean, you know, you get you get stories like this that constantly remind us of who God is and who we are. And ironically, it, it almost plays out what the law was sent to do. Show us who we are and show us who God is by contrast. And and the historical narrative as it plays out, we see our Old Testament saints, our brothers and sisters in the ancient world, uh, learn and see and experience these things firsthand. And, and you know, I mean... Parts of us can only imagine some of the things they got to see. I mean, the, the children of Israel walking through the desert. I mean, we go, oh, well, they had a tent and, you know, this and that. But it was kind of boring. And it's like, have you read the last verses of, you know, Exodus 40? I mean, the idea of this fire tornado just going with them wherever they go. And it just settles on top of the tabernacle. It's like, no wonder. No wonder when they come to Jericho. Rahab is like, everyone's trembling because you're here. We know who's traveling with you. You know, this, this, the things that they saw, the, the, the stories that we're getting to read, this constant memory of God's faithfulness, no matter the circumstance, no matter how horrible things became. And this is one of those things that's so helpful to us because it speaks to us directly. I mean, it's nearly half of God's revelation it takes place in historic narrative recounting the events, the failures, and the successes of men and women that have followed him, and then God and his actions. How he intervenes, times that he doesn't intervene, things looked impossible, and yet somehow <laughs> uh, all came through. Things were horrible, and yet somehow God is still faithful. We see that with part of Job's narrative. It's kind of like um, God had a plan. Yeah. And he sticks, yeah, and he sticks with it. Um, and, and in the historical narrative, what is it that he's that he's doing the whole time? He's he's always referring back to more historical narrative. He, he's reminding them, like in Joshua, uh, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. So he's mm -hmm. constantly reminding them. 
Um, because we kind of have this spiritual ADD and we forget. And so he's he's constantly doing that to us personally. He's He's doing it during this time. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is how you're to respond. If you do not mm-hmm. respond properly, this is what I do. Same repeated thing. Same repeated yeah. thing. Um, it's not a tale of two gods when you get to the New Testament. Same God. Right. Same repeated themes. Same law. Um, same personal loving God. And same righteous judge. Mm-hmm. Um it, you just you just see this over and over and over and over again, and then it, then you see the same things post biblically happen. If you look in history, you, you you see these similar types of things happen with the body of Christ. Just studying studying church history. So of course you know we're and from from my master side, you're focusing on this area, and of course I liked the ancient church history, but but as you study all of it, you see the same types of repeated themes mistakes that the body has made um mm-hmm. how we deal with authority how we're dealing with the culture um how all of it changes how the church changes and then areas where it's kind of okay to change and then areas where it's not okay to change mm-hmm. um idol worshipers Baal worshipers still don't go to heaven they didn't then they don't now Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. So th- these just different themes for me in history, theologically speaking, faith speaking for for me, Tim is um, why I like them so much. Because not only am I getting to learn nerdy history stuff, mm-hmm. it, it's it's very it's very personal for us, and I think we need to read it in in such a way. Absolutely, um, absolutely, it, and and honestly, this is part of our story. And I think that's one of the I think that's one of the things that people really miss out on when they see church history as only starting in Acts chapter two, or you know Matthew or whatever, and and saying you know I'm just New Testament that's all I need to focus on and stuff like this. We we miss we miss our story. Where's our beginnings? Who who are we? Where did we come from? And where are we going? And and I find that a lot of Christians are just satisfied with. Only the latter half of that dual-pronged question. We need to know where we came from. It's not just that we love Jesus and that's the end of the story. Who the heck is Jesus? Mm-hmm. Where did he come from? Why did he come? Why did he have to die? What What's the whole purpose of blood and sacrifice? And where where is this all coming from? The idea of holiness and the separation and all of these things. And it, historical narrative is such a large part of showing us who we are as God's people. And if we miss that, there there's there simply is a gap in not just our understanding of who we are, there is a gap in our theology of who God is. Mm-hmm. Because God's self-revelation, the scriptures, um, primarily, at least in special format, um, is is almost half historic narrative. And most of that is in the Old Testament. And that that should that should show us that it's incredibly important for us, at least as a grounding principle. And 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 here's here's the thing: the reason I talk about legitimacy, and the reason we kind of went off on this tangent about archaeology, trying to 
argue for the validity of these things is so many people come to the historical narratives, especially those of the Old Testament, and, and place on them a vigor that we place on modern historical writings. Yeah, and then we, when we see things like rounded off numbers, when we see things like quotations in First Kings that when they're represented in Second Chronicles are not the same, but they're, they're just, they're kind of like just loosely quoted, paraphrased, things like this. In our modern writing, we don't consider that acceptable. But in the ancient writing style, there's nothing wrong with this. It was this. common practice. It right. And so anyone who is picking it up and reading it would fully understand that. But when we bring our modern eyes to it and we say, hey, you, 3,000 years ago, you should be writing the way I read. And then we play something on the text that is unfair, something that somebody living in the year three, uh, wait, what's, what's 3,000 years from now? In the year 5,021. It's probably going to be a little bit different. If they're reading what I'm writing, I'm really hoping that they understand my setting. Yeah. Otherwise, they're going to completely misunderstand what I'm saying. Sometimes in these historic narratives, there's there's intention at glossing over things to show a point and to teach because story was teaching. You got to remember, there's a lot of societies around them that are almost half oral, half written, and the idea of every single thing being written is just it's just not the way of it. There's so much oral history that went with and side by side with the uh, with the scriptures not in the authoritative sense at this point because things were being codified but in just the realistic sense the the way that they would tell it and we see this come up in the narrative right you, you know here's the passover you are going to remember this well how will we remember it you're going to sit around the table once a year here's the questions your kids need to ask here's the answers and and the whole thing is the story of what has god done and then that should be applied to then what should we expect him to do um and and so just that that's the only real warning i would have on historic narrative don't ask of the text what it's not giving yeah well and and, and it's just interesting that you say that because the the same people that are are putting those that same kind of rigor number one on the biblical text mm-hmm. it you'll see that they don't do that with other text, number one. Right. And 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 you can tell when someone has and I'm not saying that everybody in, in secular science that's observing these things always has an agenda. I, I, I think it's actually more rare. I think they just usually have the louder, squeakier voice for some reason. Um but they wouldn't be able to write their own personal story under that type of rigor. Nope. I, and they could literally, if they were, if they used the same, they would not be able to write their their own story. Um, and so you, you can you can see the hypocrisy in 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 people that do that. And I would say that that is rare. That there are people that are not of the faith that are doing scientific work, and and they you can tell they don't have an agenda. They're just, but you do see the spiritual element always at play um even with somebody that doesn't have an agenda they're going to interpret data a lot differently than than oh, we yeah. are 
especially if it's a historical narrative like scripture, which is actually calling them to task, uh, which is kind of unique about biblical literature. But I mean, you're right in saying it's not always a spiritual thing either. Um, sometimes it's just chronological snobbery. Yes. It's just this, we are in the modern era and those morons were in the past and we hate that. And we will study them as if they're basically monkeys. And so like, for instance, Homer was read this way for a long time uh, after the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, uh, especially in the radical in, uh, in the in the radical Enlightenment, Voltaire and these types of things. Later on, the idea of the of the sacking of Troy, hmm. yeah, what it myth. was purely myth. I mean, just myth. Absolutely, nobody had any doubt. And then we found Troy. And lo and behold, maybe the ancient world wasn't... There's always this joke, right? Archaeologist goes out and he finds something he doesn't understand. So what does he say it is? Ah, it must be some ceremonial, mystical, religious use. It's like, that's the laziest... That's the laziest thing that any archaeologist can do. And unfortunately, when people read historical narratives, scripture or otherwise, they do the same thing. They're just... They're waiting to dismiss it. And and when it came to something like uh, the, the quote-unquote myths of Troy, um, they didn't realize that, at least in the Mycenaean world at the time, um, and, and the, the cultures that came after them, the Greek cultures and others, there was this mixture of narrative and myth together. And it was this bizarre amalgam that nobody had considered before, and... There you go. You can just follow the descriptions there in the Iliad, and you can find your way to Troy, which is actually how the dude found it. Um, really amazing stuff. But, I mean, that's, that's kind of the thing, is us in our modern era, we don't know how to interact with the ancient world. We have such a hard time with it, because we have so many prejudices about it. I mean, it's, it's kind of like us trying to interact with the medieval world and try to not call it the Dark Ages, right? You know, as if as if everybody was around, nobody knew how to read, nobody knew how to do anything. They just sat around on their hands and like ate slop or something. This is this is not how any of this works out. It's just this idea of we've arrived, we have iPhones, we have computers, therefore people in the past were just dumb or something, and so we're going to approach them as if, you know, they're just so stupid they still believe this happened or that happened and we know far better. And as it turns out, we're we're actually wrong a lot more often than they are, um, which oh, is quite man. impressive. I mean, I mean, I know we keep bringing up archaeology, but I mean, it, it kind of comes side by side with historical narrative like this, right? I mean, the Hittites, classic example. Oh yeah, the scriptures spoke of the Hittites. I mean, upwards and downwards, all over the place, describing them as this enormous civilization and. Th- and archaeology never run across it. And as you mentioned, if it hasn't run across it, then you they, have to call they, it all yeah. into question. There's no proof that away. they existed other than all of these texts that talk about them. And then you start finding other languages and, outside of the Bible that, that talk and about And then them. we found them. And then we found them. And and it's it's this it's this constant, you know, okay, fine, so the Bible was right on the Hittites, but gosh, it's got to be wrong on this. And, well, it's not wrong on that. Okay, well, fine, I'll get you that one. But, and then we just go and find something else in the historical narrative to just call into question. That cannot be our approach. 
<laughs> to something no. that keeps showing itself to be dependable, um, especially in the way it gives history. In the ancient world, there are very few histories that even come close to the detail and the claim of firsthand account that the scriptures do, especially right. for the time frame that it does. And it keeps backing itself up. I mean, there are places where when we when we make claims over, well, it's not exactly right here. We're literally talking about the split of one half of a year 2,600 years ago. Yeah. Was it 586 or 587? Yeah. What? Are, are you missing, like, missing part of the your point. brain? I mean, what are you missing here? The whole narrative is spent on explaining to you this. It's not even listing out 586. It's just saying in the first year of this dude, this, that. And you're able to go check it. You know why? Because they were there to write about it. Yeah. And and so when we do get to the New Testament too. Yeah. It seems to me that they're talking about it like it's fact too, and I, and I'm just kind of bringing this up because it made me think when when you were talking about that, because um, I was in I was in Acts today, and of course I'm I'm reading Acts seven, which was you know Stephen's Stephen's speech um, before he's getting stoned, and what is it what right. is it that he does to to answer the high priest? Tells him a story. And he tells him the story. They're saying he's blaspheming. That he had they had some people. Um, basically lie um saying that Stephen was doing these things and what does he do he tells the most religious people um the scribes and the pharisees the sanhedrin the chief priest and he tells them their story in great mm-hmm. detail he uh is not as long-winded as i am but he he, he just kind of goes over all of everything starting from Abraham and how he was in Mesopotamia and how he lived in Haran and like he he and he even kind of gives these little details that they would have known very well and then of course they they stone him wow man i guess maybe he told it too accurate and showed him up I, um it well, I think it's right around the time where he called them the stiff-necked people that were uncircumcised yeah, that's probably what ears. did it <laughs> <laughs> always resisting the Holy Spirit. Because it's funny. Just like he's your like, fathers He, he tells them their story. He's like, all of this stuff, here's your story. They wouldn't have disagreed with it. And you're now <laughs> you're one the of the bad same. guys. You're the bad guys. <laughs> Surprise. Um, And, of course, you know, we don't, we don't like being wrong. We don't like being the bad guys, mm-hmm. especially us religious people. Um, why, why is it that you think... And it just kind of going off a, a little bit is on how we think because we can fall into the same trap of thinking mm-hmm. that they're somehow less intelligent or not as evolved in that. Do you think it kind of comes from this evolutionary idea, or is it just because um, they didn't have the technology? The, the other thing is that I see that they're incredibly brilliant. Um, minds that are just as intelligent as as anybody today to be able mm-hmm. to do the things that they did without the technology that we had. Um, right. It just a uh, um. Why why do you think that is that there's kind of this some somewhat judgment on on the past of not even just ancient but even in the past in general but something about ancient people and we we look at them as 
like they're knuckle draggers. Right. Um, well, a lot of this is ignorance. Um, yeah. People know very little about the ancient world and how absolutely amazing the people are that live in it. Um, so barring that, for those who are learned and have no excuse, um, it comes from, typically comes from, and I don't want to, you know, disparage entire stereotypical <laughs> things here, but um, it typically comes from a progressivist view of history. Um, this it's idea kind of a that, school of thought. Yeah, it, it that things are going better and getting better and getting, you know, faster. And in some ways it's, it's true the more we learn, but, you know, it doesn't mean we look behind us and, and kick the person's head whose shoulders we're standing on. Uh, yeah. And that you know this is this this kind of attitude towards the past comes from this idea that you know you know having been what there was this old saying what was it uh, having been born on third base we act like we hit a triple <laughs> you know and the, the reality is we we did not yeah, I know you'd appreciate that as a I, baseball I really guy. like that one. You know, and it's this idea that um, we got here because we're great and we give no credit where credit's due to those people who came before us. And so the further they are behind us, the worse they must be. And and so we just look at them as, I mean, you get someone to look at, I mean, forget Iron Age, look at Bronze Age people, you know, I mean... They must have. All they did was walk around sacrificing things to to idols, hundred percent of the time. And it's like, dude, I I would love to take a hundred of anybody out of this culture, dump them into the ancient world. You go figure out how to invent bronze. Yeah. Before you do that, you have to figure out how to mine copper for about 90% of the metal. And then you have to go find tin. Do you know where tin is? Guess what? The closest tin uh, mines are in Afghanistan. Good luck. By the way, there's no accurate maps. There's only rumors. And you don't actually know how to process it. And even when you do, you don't know how to find your way home. Like, I don't even want to hear it. The 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 way that the ancient world worked, the way that they developed trade, the way that they they intricated everything, is simply astounding. And the fact that people look down on it is is I find it honestly kind of offensive, on behalf of people who aren't alive to defend themselves. And and I think part of it comes from that is just people have no idea. And and that kind of you know we talk about it in the way we tell our own stories. And a lot of this, I, I say comes from the progressivist mentality because a lot of it came from the Enlightenment. I mean, look at the way we named that period of history. The Enlightenment. What did we call the thousand years before that? The Dark Ages. Those morons. They don't know a darn thing about this, but now we've come to the fullest. It's like, I'm sorry, who invented the university? Oh yeah, the Dark Ages. You know, I, I don't want to hear about this. This, this, this concept... That the people who come before us aren't worthy of our time, um, and and I think a lot of it comes from ignorance, and a whole lot of it comes from pride. Yeah, yeah. And if we approach scripture that way, we will never, ever understand it on its own two feet. Which yeah, you're is done the goal before you started. Theology, right? Yeah, you're you're done before you started. You know, we read a book uh, right when we started too that 
speaks a little bit about this. He's talking more about the church age, but if you remember Dominion, you know, I think theologically I'd land in some different places, but it, it is a really, it, it is a really good, um, popular written History. for the popular uh, audience of, right. uh, and basically the argument is too, of that the, the way things are, at least from, from a better perspective, because you know, there's, there's some things I think that are bad, but there there's some things that are obviously really good that do not happen without Christianity. Um, the, mm-hmm. the impact that Christianity had on the world and, 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 out, and also the impact it had on the world in a relatively small time. You got to look by the time, by the time Constantine, half of his empire is Christian. Competing with a lot of ideas and cultures and philosophies, um, let alone it being just a sect within Judaism, half right. of the empire is is Christian. Um, just go look at an old map of how much geography, number one, that that encompassed. Um, and, and also, too, it was spread that fast by not not by means of the elite it was Mm. slaves it was it was it was the persecuted the poor it was the Mm. um while it was at times being trying to be squashed out by the powers that be numerous numerous times trying to be and for those of you who are listening the book that caleb is talking about is called dominion it's by tom holland it is not for the faint of heart. No. That sucker is 700 pages, and it is very, uh, how to put it, it's a historical text. He's that's, British. Maybe. Yeah, there, that's, that's probably the best way to put it. He's British. Um, it's it's, it's 9,000 pages crunched into 700. How's that? And um, it kind of just tells the story of how Christianity affected the world. But it's not a hard read. It doesn't have this high, you know, It just takes language. forever. It just, it just yeah. takes forever. Um, but it's a good read if, if you like such things. And, and he, makes, yep. he makes a good argument. Um, and, and I agree with him on that, on that, on that idea. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of the thing is, is the way... Yeah, and, and that kind of continues this idea of historical narrative. So, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I teach church history is, is because story and narrative are so important to the revelation of God, to the people of God, to know who they are as the people of God. Um, it's one of the reasons why I teach church history and have for years is, is we, we need to know how has this story continued. It's not just about... Um, you know, for a lot of Christians, you know, the New Testament, which contains basically one book of historical narrative. And then who cares about anything, anything? I don't know. I heard about Luther and Augustine once. I don't really know what they did, whatever. But my church and me. And that's that's so many people's concept of church history that no wonder we think we have no story. And we don't think that there's any value in the Old Testament. We don't care about our story. Why would we care about theirs? And, and th- this this idea, though, that there is an unbroken story from the creation of the world to the consummation of heaven and earth. And it's a miracle that, that we have. It. It, there's Say no again. way we should have it. There's no way we should have that story if you study anything. Right. I mean, it's a miracle. Right. It's it like is. God wrote it. 
and inspire right and 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 you do not get you do not get what the scriptures are from from four dozen disjointed authors with different cultures different centuries different millennia different languages Mm -hmm. and what we come out with is a unified narrative story that is delivering aspects of it in various different ways and then continuing on the story with clarity um and for all the the theological wranglings that we do there's not a lack of clarity for what the story actually is we nobody's trying to make the argument that the story is about you know for instance esther and that's it like she's the center of all biblical interpretation nobody's making that interpretation why because it's ludicrous it's about christ Mm-hmm. And it's clear as a bell if you read it and you know it. And there's just no way around it. And 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 that continues throughout church history, even with all of our wranglings, even with all of our differences and disagreements, and even with all my theological error that I carry in my own heart. It is still about Christ, mm-hmm. and that is undeniable. And there is there is a requirement on us to know our own stories in light of the stories that came before us not just the ones in scripture but with this is why we fellowship as christians with other christians and not even with those just of our own time period i i'm i'm such a huge proponent of seeing ourselves in the flow of church history oh and i I say i say this to my church history class all the time you are somebody's church history that hasn't been born yet. Yeah. And, what, and look, what are you we doing better with that responsibility. We better be a part of history to to continue this legacy, or you're yeah. not bearing fruit. You're not being a disciple. Um yeah. so that's something that we each gotta kind of think about too. Um pretty good chance that you're going to die out there, um, present company included. What what is it you're gonna leave behind? Um, right. A bunch of stuff that they're gonna sell, and then gonna go eat after your funeral, hmm. and then that's it. Or is, is it a legacy? It it is it. Man, that this person showed me Jesus. Um, the hardest thing I ever did. Um, speaking at my best friend's. Uh, funeral died on christmas day a few years ago and um that's the story that i told about him that's the story i wanted his dad to hear um and wasn't a made-up story he he was he was christ to me he was a friend he was a disciple um he was never preaching to me or but he he showed me christ um we need to be we need to be passing on a legacy. We need to remember that we're a part of this story. It yep. starts in Genesis. Um, we're we're part of the story, um, and and as long as we're in um, this part of the already but not yet, it's it's gonna go on. Um, we need to be a part of it. You want to close right. this out, Tim? Absolutely. Our Father, we uh, <clears throat> we thank you that you are a God that 
works in the midst of history mm. that you did not just create a three-dimensional world but a four-dimensional one that as we pass through time you're passing through it with us even though you're above it and we are grateful that you tell us the many different ways that you have interacted with our brothers and sisters throughout history not a not a perfect one in the midst of them all us included and you still work with us you are the god who is faithful to his covenants and we can see that and we praise you for it it is something that we cannot even imagine making up on our own or bringing about on our own we are grateful that we can see who you are in your word. Forgive us for those times where we would rather our own interpretations of events rather than yours. We pray, Father, that as we look into all of these things, we never call into doubt those things that you have settled. But we instead call our dependence on you and our gratitude for those things that you are doing and continue to do and will do long after our bodies go into the ground. We know that we as people are as grass. We wither and mm. die. And afterwards, still, your word will stand. We thank you for the promise of resurrection, which makes all of these things even more worth it. You are a God who would be worth it to follow even if this life was all that there was. But you have promised us everlasting life in the midst of your presence. For that, we look forward to the end of this story. Mm. The answer to all the narratives. And we are growing more impatient as the days wear on. We thank you for all these things. In your son's name. for listening to Theology Untucked. Join us each week as we engage in all things theological, biblical, and cultural. These are the types of conversations we should be having in the church today, and we aim to play our part. Also, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a question you'd like us to address, or a prayer request, please send them to us. You can reach me at Caleb at TheologyUntucked.com. Or you can reach me at Tim at TheologyUntucked.com. Do note that your prayer requests remain strictly confidential. We will not be sharing them on the show. For more information or to support the show, please visit TheologyUntucked.com. Lord's blessings to you all.